So when we read the Christian scriptures, we believe we're doing more than simply studying ancient text. Uh, we believe that God actually speaks to us through these words. So let's take a moment and get silent and really be present, quiet our hearts so we can listen to what God's word really means. So our reading today is from Paul's letter to the Colossian church. The sun is the image of the invisible God, the one who is first over all creation because all things were created by him, both in the heavens and on the earth, the things that are visible and the things that are invisible. Whether they are thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He existed before all things, and all things are held together in him. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the one who is firstborn from among the dead, so that he may occupy the first place in everything. Because all the fullness of God was pleased to live in him, and he reconciled all things to himself through him, whether things are on the earth or in the heavens, he brought peace through the blood of his cross. I love it. I think that is one of my favorite passages of scripture. And so to have the privilege to walk through it with you tonight is an absolute gift for me. Um, so thanks for, to Katie uh, for the warm invitation and also the warm welcome tonight. I'm Joanna Meyer. I lead public engagement at the Denver Institute for Faith and Work. And a lot of people, when they hear that that's my job, go, what in the world do you do? And how did you end up doing that? Because um, it is a very niche job. I get to spend my days coming alongside Christians and inspiring them and equipping them to have godly influence in whatever form of work that they do. But long before I ever worked for Denver Institute, I spent the first 12 years of my career working in campus ministry. I've done a lot of stuff since then. I've worked in the corporate sector. For a while, I was a professor at Denver Seminary. I taught sewing at the Fancy Tiger for 10 years. Is anybody a sewing fan? Yes, if you need help threading a bobbin, I can help you with that. Um, But the really formative early years of my career were spent working for a Christian campus ministry. And the idea was that college students become the leaders of tomorrow. So if you can introduce them to Christ during those formative young adult years and help them grow in their faith, they're going to be godly leaders in the future. And so for, I see a few smiles. How many people in your, for those of you that went to college, how many people might have run into a campus ministry staff with that motivation in mind? A few of you had. Over those years, uh, we have a slide, I probably said the phrase, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life about a few hundred, if not a thousand times, because we had a little evangelistic track that we would walk through with students, um, and that was the first statement that we shared with them. And so I have vivid memories of having conversations about faith with students while I sat on inflatable chairs from Target that slowly lost their air over the course of the conversation. And we're trying to talk about, like, God's love for them. Uh, I became an avid watcher of The Bachelor during that time because I was working with sorority girls, and it was a way to just have a very natural connecting point to talk about whatever had happened on The Bachelor that week. Um, And there were so many sweet memories from that time. 
because I saw students discover Christ for the very first time in their lives. I still follow a woman on Facebook that responded to Christ and saw a dramatic change in her lives. And 20 years later, she's still walking with God and raising kids to follow him. Um, and so I saw such sweetness on that time. But I also over those years, begin to have an internal conflict. Because we talked about preparing college students to be the leaders of tomorrow with the idea that they would go out into the world and have an influence for God there. But the reality was we did a really lousy job of that. We fell into this idea that the most important work happens in introducing college students to Christ. And so we began a cycle of just saying, well, that's the most important thing. So that's what we need to equip people and recruit people to do. And so as you had a senior who would be your sharpest senior as they were getting ready to graduate, instead of really coming alongside them and preparing them to walk with God through their work and life in the world, you recruited them back to work for the campus ministry. And so for the students that would go on to do something else, you kind of poo-pooed their choices like it was uh, a secondary choice or a little lesser idea of what it meant to walk with God. And I struggled with that because I watched our students graduate and really flounder when they hit the real world. I would watch students go into public education and just think, I'm utterly unprepared for the complexity of the worldviews and the systems that I'm encountering in my daily work. I don't know how to be a leader for Christ in this setting. I would watch students um, go into the tech center and suddenly hit all of the moral issues that are, that are filling technology today and think, this isn't what you trained me for. And so I began to have a season of unrest internally, of thinking, like, walking with God must be more than just the personal relationship with God, of meeting Jesus for the first time and growing in my discipleship practices and knowledge of the Bible. But I didn't know what that looked like. And thanks be to God, I started going to a church that was a bit like Nova, that had a vision of the gospel, as we call it, that was big and broad, that it spoke into culture and systems and the way the world worked. And I also began asking questions for myself about what does it mean to follow God in the bigness of all that Christ is? I remember standing in a Gothic cathedral in Europe and just marveling at the architecture, not for the words of the service that were taking place within that church, but that through the wisdom, inspiration, and craft of the architect himself, the design of the building could inspire wonder and curiosity about God. And I began to ask, how big is this gospel, and what actually could it mean for our daily life? Tonight, as we were touching on, if you would show the next slide, we'll be asking a question of what really is the gospel? What does it look like to sink our lives fully in all that God invites us into when we give our lives to him? So my hope for you is that you would leave tonight with a biblical framework for thinking about the bigness of God and what he's inviting us into, as well as three questions. Notice I didn't say answers, but three questions that can guide you as you think about your life and your daily work. So let's take a moment and look at um, the scripture text that we had read earlier in Colossians 1. I love that I get to preach this in the weeks after Easter. Because on Easter Sunday and Resurrection Sunday, we celebrate the risen Christ. And if we read further into into Scripture, by by the time we hit Colossians 1, it is a hymn of praise to Jesus, the risen Christ, and all the implications of what his resurrection means. Um, And this has profound implications for our daily work. I bolded a few passages in there, and you'll notice on the second slide, I, I made a slight edit. I found the pronouns a little confusing, and so I put 
things that felt clear to me in the brackets. So I'll ask that you forgive me for making that change. But as we skim through this briefly, I want you to look at the bolded words up there. Um, the sun is the image of the invisible God, the one who is first over all creation. Be looking for every time we see the word all in here. Because all things were created by him, both in heavens and the heavens and on the earth, the things that are visible and the things that are invisible, whether they are thrones or powers. Isn't that interesting in light of yesterday's coronation of King Charles? I don't know if anybody was watching that. They, they actually were talking about the supremacy of Christ in the coronation ceremony, which was fascinating. Um, the things that are visible and the things that are invisible, whether they are thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He existed before all things, and all things are held together in him. He is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the one who was firstborn from among the dead, I love this next line, so that he might occupy the first place in everything. And let's look at the next slide. Because all the fullness of God was pleased to live in Christ, and God reconciled all things to himself through Christ, whether things on earth or in the heavens, he brought peace through the blood of his cross. When you're looking for that word all, it really stands out, doesn't it? It just rings. The scope of all of creation and the work of Christ echoes through this passage. And what I love about this is it reminds us that when we respond to Christ, his saving work on the cross, his resurrection, our lives are absorbed into both the intimacy of a personal walk with God and the Holy Spirit's presence in our life, in the immensity of the allness that you see here. It gives dignity to every ounce of our daily lives and makes it a place that can be rich for both God's presence and our relationship with him and also for godly influence. And so as we talk about this intersection of faith and work, it's an invitation for you, if you'd show the next slide, to live in both the intimacy of the gospel and the immensity of what it holds for you. It requires imagination on our part to even begin to grasp the immensity and the freedom that God gives us as we walk with him. So as we think about um, the next few questions that I have for you, I want you to remember that the gospel is both deeply personal and as broad as the needs of the world. Isn't that amazing? to think that whatever need we find in whatever corner of the world we work in, whatever industry we serve, that God is present there and at work, changing and making it new. I love what the Dutch politician and theologian Abraham Kuyper says. He says, there's not a square inch of creation that Christ doesn't claim as his own. What a beautiful thought. To think that, I don't know how many people in the room, maybe like 40 people are in the room, that tomorrow you will go out into the world into your square inch, or maybe your 100 square feet. I'm not sure how big your workspace is. But Christ has claimed that as his own, and he's allowed you to be there as his presence, invited to have the influence of the gospel, the renewing work of all things under, um, brought and healed under Christ um, is there with you. So as we think about this, I, I want to give you three questions. The first starts with really understanding you and where God has put you. And the question is, what has God entrusted to you? What's your sphere of influence? One of the best works, books I know about faith and work is by an author named Amy Sherman. If you're a reader, it's called Kingdom Calling, Vocational Stewardship for the Common Good. 
totally recommend it. It's, a, it's an easy read and really encouraging. But in it, Amy says that every single one of us has a unique type of power related to our calling in Christ. And she lists about seven. But they could be things like your relational network, your platform. Because I work at Denver Institute and host a podcast, I have a unique kind of platform because of doing that. But some of you may be in the type of job where people look to you. You're visible in your role, in the company that you work for, or in your community. That platform is a unique place of power where you can have kingdom influence. It may be a relational network. We were just talking about this earlier, John. Like, You have an amazing network. Um, and God has the potential to work through the web of relationships that you have built over years. Other areas of influence might be your authority or subject matter expertise. You could be the expert in your field. Whatever it is, God has uniquely entrusted something to you that can be used for his glory and his influence. But the trick is figuring out what it is. I want to read you a quote from um, Lee Hardy where he talks about this. And he demystifies, what does it look like to figure out what God has for me? This is what he writes. He says, discovering God's will for one's life is not so much a matter of seeking out miraculous signs and wonders as it is being attentive to who and where we are. It is not as if our abilities, concerns, or interests are just there as an accident of nature, and then God has to intervene in some special way in order to make his will known to us in a completely unrelated manner. Rather, we ought to take seriously the doctrine of divine providence. God himself tell, gives us, oh, sorry, God himself gives us whatever abilities, concerns, and interests we possess. These are his gifts. And for that very reason, they can serve as indicators of his will for our lives. In coming to know ourselves and our situation, we come to know God's will. So this would be a fascinating conversation over coffee or over popsicles after church. Is really talking about what is your unique sphere of influence. Let me give you a couple examples of friends I know and how they've wrestled with this question in their own life. I think of my friend Allie, who teaches in Denver Public Schools um, in one of the underserved schools in our neighborhood. And she was pretty overwhelmed by the complexity of the social issues that were affecting her kid's life out of the school day. And so for her to be effective in the classroom meant understanding what she had the ability to affect and what she didn't. And so she said, you know, I cannot control what happens to my kids after they leave school. I can't, I can't solve the problem of poverty in their neighborhood unless I go out and form a nonprofit. But she realized that within the walls of class, her classroom, she had a unique sphere of influence. And she said, while they are with me, I'm getting goosebumps just talking about it. While they are with me, I will structure a classroom culture that will recognize the God-given dignity the image of God of every student that comes through my door. I will create a classroom culture that reflects the attributes of God. For kids that grow up in chaos and uncertainty, it will be a place of peace. It will be a place where I communicate with a balance of grace and truth. And where they will experience godly hospitality as they're welcome to come and learn. So for Allie, what transformed her approach to teaching was beginning to really understand what she did have the power to influence and asking God's wisdom to shape it there. Does that make sense? Can you imagine how a parent-teacher conference with Allie might look if she was filtering it through that lens? What a gift to that community. But part of her effectiveness meant understanding what God had entrusted to her. 
Let's think of another person. What if you're a barista at um, the Thump Coffee on 13th Street? Or is it 14th? I forget. But it's here in the neighborhood. And you're a new hire. You're not even a shift manager. You're like the lowest person on the rung of the employment ladder at Thump. You don't have a lot of agency, right? You're just serving people coffee. So understanding your sphere of influence is really recognizing what you have the power to, to change or power to control. And really, in a situation like that, it's probably just yourself and your attitude, right? So it may feel like your sphere of influence is small. But think about the vocational power of that situation. How many hundreds of people is a barista seeing every day? So someone who sees the good work of offering caffeine, right, good work, of offering caffeine to the Capitol Hill neighborhood can be done with the hospitality of God. Or can be offered with holy intent, saying, God, I will love you and love my neighbor through the way that I greet every person who comes through the line today, through the care I give them, through the latte art I make for somebody who's having a bad day. But all of that is bringing the goodness of God to the ground within that person's sphere of influence. So I want to pause a moment and give you a second to think about what is the sphere of influence that God has given you? Or is there a unique power or superpower that comes of who you are in that place? A second question that can guide this conversation about how we have godly imagination for our work is to ask what is beautiful and what is broken about this situation. This is one thing I love because each of you is uniquely positioned within our community in a form of work. And it's a form of work that no missionary probably will ever go. And I hope uh, Katie and Chuck can handle this. But you guys probably don't know anything about what it looks like to have a godly influence in the tech center, right? Yeah, yeah. Or, or running a food truck. You're just not quick, equipped for that. There are certain places where only you will be. You are the subject matter experts about the team that you lead if you're a manager, the company that you serve if you work at Aero Electronics, or the industry that you're in. You see every day what's jacked up and what's beautiful in that space. And so as Christians, an area of discipleship for our work is training ourselves to think more deeply about, when I say broken, I mean, what isn't the way that God would intend it to be? Only you'll see that. Or what's an opportunity for you to bring out God's goodness, beauty, truth, we could, the list could go on and on, but this is what redemptive imagination looks like, is to say, how could God be at work to make this a different place? Let me give you a couple of examples of how I've seen that play out. We run an intensive discipleship program for emerging leaders called the 5280 Fellowship. It's like this amazing nine-month experience where they get discipled to lead through their calling. Um, and one of the women was a mortgage salesman for a, lo- a saleswoman for a local credit union. On the surface, you would think that's not good godly work, right? Mortgage sales. But she ran a team, and as she looked more deeply at how her credit union had structured the process of selling mortgages, 
she realized that the pay structure, would, I, the commissions, was, were designed to incentivize total sales, regardless of whether it was a good sale or working the benefit of the client or not. So she realized this actually isn't a, go- a godly thing, to jam people in mortgages that may not be right for them. And so she thought, is there a way to redeem this awkward situation that isn't good for our customers. And so she led up in a big way. She went to the leaders with her, in her division of the credit union and said, I'd like to try something new. I'd like to try an approach to what I call servant-based selling, where our priority will be to, to teach our employees to listen well to our customers' needs and to match them with the right mortgage product to fit their needs. That's better for our customers than the way that we're currently doing it. That's God-honoring work. That's redeeming something that's broken and exploitative to love your neighbor through getting them into a good mortgage product. And the amazing thing was their sales went up. My friend Kat got a promotion because of her leadership in this area. Now, can I step into the local credit union and offer them godly insight about selling mortgages? No, not at all. Not at all. Only Kat was where Kat worked and had the expertise to know how to do that. But she also had been discipled to see brokenness and be able to respond to it in a way that encouraged human flourishing and was offered in a sacrificial Christ-like model. Um, so there, that's a wonderful example of what it looks like. I'm wondering if anybody around here is a middle manager. Any middle managers in the room? I have a small team that I lead, so I'm kind of a middle manager. But I think it's kind of a thankless job. There's some people who, and maybe your parents are middle managers, where you could be working for a big corporation and spend your entire career. Do you have a family member who's a middle manager? You are. Okay, yes. It's not glamorous work, is it? But I want you to think about what management is. I remember on my winding career journey, I had told the guy I was networking with that I wanted to do leadership development. This is my season where I was like, I develop leaders. Um, And he looked at me and said, Joanna, anytime you're managing a team, you're doing leadership development. And so if you're in a role where you have the opportunity to manage people, it's a grave responsibility. We're actually hosting a webinar at work this week called The Holy Work of Management. Because you're entrusted with people's lives. What happens at work carries over at home. And so when you're entrusted with an individual, your responsibility is to help release the God-given potential of that person, to build a team culture that functions effectively for the aims in which you've been been tasked. Middle management is deeply holy work, but we have to be able to say what's beautiful in this situation, how can we amplify that in the lives of my employees, what's broken about the situation. Early in my career, I um, spent years temping in corporate sectors, and I was always amazed at how much tension there was between teams, kind of that cross-functional thing. Teams, like, fight with each other, and it's, does it happen at the seminary? I'm looking at you, Angie. When, <laughs> but you can have a pretty toxic culture in, in an organization, right, when, a team, when teams go sideways and that energy is bad. As a manager, as a team lead, you set the tone for your team, You moderate interactions for your team with other teams in the organization. You can be responsible for having a conflict-less, I don't know if you can ever go conflict-free, but you can reduce conflict. You can set a tone of peace within your organization. Are you following me? Like this idea that there's opportunity for godly influence at every level. So my question for you to reflect on is, 
Where do you have opportunities to infuse God's goodness, beauty, or truth in your current situation? And this might be an easier question to answer. What isn't the way God intends it to be in your current role? And the last question I want to give you is, how will you stay engaged over time? One of the challenges about talking about faith and work is that there aren't a lot of quick fixes. This is a vision of playing the long game in the life of faith. That if you want to see lasting impact in people's lives or actual change that's built to last, it's going to take consistent wisdom engagement over time. And that means fighting discouragement and fatigue. I've begun to follow... um, some Christian thinkers who have talked, they use a metaphor of reweaving the social fabric, which can sound a little bit esoteric. They're pretty smart folks. But the more I think about it, the more accessible it feels to me. I guess because I love textiles. You know, I was a sewing teacher, and so I've looked at the weave of fabric a lot. I love this carpet because it has this wonderfully, like, nubby weave. So I think about that a lot. I think we could probably all agree that our social fabric at the moment is fraying, isn't it? As Christians, God's uniquely placed us all over our communities. And we have the opportunity to to be people that pick at those gaping holes that are starting to form, who are willing to begin to engage the process of reweaving. That's redemptive, isn't it? It's restoring, rebuilding, and healing what isn't the way God intends it to be. But that only happens with time. Um, Here's a quote. It actually is, I I don't think I've ever read a quote from the Apocrypha, which is kind of Catholic um, teaching that's a little bit outside the Orthodox uh, Protestant Bible. But I love it. And I'm just going to read it because I think it's very illustrative of this conversation. It says, but they tend to the fabric of this world and their prayer is the practice of their trade. What a beautiful picture, I think, of you going out today and being people that have the potential to reweave a little bit. That there's a prayerfulness in the practice of what you do. I would love to have a conversation over coffee. Maybe if we had a friend who was working at Thump Coffee and could make us some some latte art, we could have a conversation over coffee to hear a little bit more about your daily work and what it looks like. Because none of us are doing really the same thing. None of us are working in the same teams. So there's a wealth of opportunities for us to explore. What does it mean to live for Christ in these spaces that he's given us? But my commission to you is to think deeply into those questions, to think more about what he's entrusted to you, both the sphere, the scope of what he's given you, and the unique power that you have within it. To think about what's broken and beautiful in that space and ask God to spark your imagination for what it might look like to be an engaged person who's beginning to trust him to lead you to create change. And also to consider what does it look like to stay engaged over time? That's one of the beauties of this journey is that it isn't fast, but God is faithful and he will disciple us and be present with us over time. To wrap up today, I would like to give you a blessing. So if you would, close your eyes. Just sink into some of the things we've been talking about today. And I'd love to just pray this blessing over you. May Jesus Christ, by whom and for whom all things were created, 
who is before all things and in whom all things hold together. Inspire your work to create goodness, amplify beauty, and speak truth in the world. Sharpen your mind to see opportunities to redeem and restore. And sustain your efforts as the weight of brokenness weighs heavily on your soul. Amen.